grace. Redemption and grace in the life of a believer who almost loses his faith. So ultimately, Psalm 73 points to the table. It points to Jesus because it pictures the tenderness and and the mercy and the crazy healing, restoring, forgiving love of God uh, toward his children made possible because of the death of Jesus Christ. Now, as we move into this, I want you to understand a whole lot of people are just like the author of this psalm. His name is Asaph. And that a whole lot of people today are ticked off at God, mad at God, disappointed with God, frustrated with God, struggling with God, uh, struggling with the injustice of God on a lot of different fronts, say the prosperity of the wicked, allowing evil to prosper. We'll see that here. As a matter of fact, the problem of suffering and evil is one of the main reasons people today don't want anything to do with God. But that's not just true uh, for people outside the church. That's also a problem for many of us inside the church. Uh, When suffering and pain and loss and setback uh, finds our address, God, God, I want to believe in you, but why is it that everyone else around us can get pregnant and we can't? God, I, I want to serve you. I want to walk with you. I, I want to be involved in the work of your kingdom. But we are in such a mess financially, and it's been so tight for years, we can barely breathe. God, where are you? Or God, why did you take him? Leave me alone. Why does so much seem so unfair? And the situation is often compounded in the church. Because there's this subtle, sometimes it's not so subtle, this subtle uh, pressure that good Christians never doubt God. Never get angry at God. Never struggle. Never. But that's just not true. And nowhere is that more clear than our psalm today. So we're going to read most of this psalm, but let's pick it up beginning in verse 1, Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. And he continues, and then in verse 12, he summarizes. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree, They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. 
If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me. With your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Now there are two parts, uh, two main parts to this psalm. There's the conflict and the resolution, the problem and then the solution, the destructive doubt, and then the vibrant faith. Now uh, the conflict is basically the first 16 verses. Uh, Then the resolution begins in verse 17 for the last 12 verses. So what I want to do is begin this morning with the conflict or the problem. But I want you to understand what we have here is one authentic, one amazing, one really raw confession. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, Asaph says, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. He's painting a picture of hiking, of of walking. Uh, Many would say of mountain climbing because footholds, and the NIV uses the term footholds, suggests mountain climbing. You don't place your feet in footholds when you're on level ground. Now, it was about 10 years ago this summer that I was hiking out in the Rockies. It's hiking with our uh, our family, but... um, Through some circumstances, I got separated, and I was way above the tree line. And I was on a a ridge, a really steep ridge. I was probably about 13,300 feet. And it was one of these ridges that had suddenly narrowed, and it was hundreds of feet down on both sides. And I hate heights. How many of you hate heights? Yeah, a lot of us. And and I came to this point where I had... uh, to get across um, a, a, a steep um, area, and I kind of had to do it spread-eagled almost on my face, and it was full of shale, full of loose rock. And as soon as I went and I, I knew what I was getting myself into, my feet started to slip, and I started to slide, and I thought more vividly than any other moment in my life that I was going to die, that I was going to go over and go, hundreds of feet to my death. And then just as soon as I started to slip, uh, my foot caught a solid rock and I stopped and I made it to the other side. Now, those of you that hate heights are sweating right now. (laughs) And you just need to breathe, okay? But look at verse 2. 
Verse 2 is a picture like that. It's a figurative way of Asaph saying, I almost lost my faith. I almost went over the edge. I almost plunged to my death. Verse 2 is a vivid metaphor of doubt. Spiritual disequilibrium. Now here's where this gets interesting. Asaph, the author is also the author of the next 10 Psalms. He has written a couple, at least one Psalm earlier in the Psalter. And he was a, 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 a big dog, a, a leading spiritual leader in all of Israel. He was an outstanding musician, one of the finest musicians in the land. He was the Brian Hogan of Israel. An amazing guy. And if you look at verse 13, you discover in addition to all his talents and his gifts, he was a Levite, he was a worship leader, he was a godly man. I mean, he was self-controlled, self-disciplined. He worked to keep his heart pure. So all this to say, Asaph is a high-functioning man, a spiritually-minded man. Being the author of Scripture isn't bad either, right? Right? And you see what this means? If Asaph can doubt, anyone can doubt. Doubt does not belong to the domain of the weak. And in addition, doubts can be redemptive. In Asaph's case, it leads to uh, tremendous spiritual growth. That's the story of the psalm. Now, yes, doubts can lead to evil and all sorts of trouble, but doubts in and of themselves are not inherently evil because they are nothing, often nothing more than unresolved questions. Lingering questions. Now, yes, Asaph almost fell because of his doubts. But in the end, he was stronger. His faith was more vibrant for going through the process. Think of Job wrestling with God. Or think of Thomas in the New Testament and, and his doubts. You see, doubt is when your heart is out of alignment with your head. Or depending what's behind the doubts, when your head is out of alignment with your heart. And it creates spiritual vertigo. You're destabilized. You're off balance. It creates confusion. But in the hands of God, anger, disappointment with God, our doubts can also propel us to new levels, new heights of spiritual growth. And that is exactly what happens here. I want you to be encouraged by that. And by the way, uh, parenthetically, I hope Wheaton Bible Church is a place where people feel free to raise their questions to express doubts. And, and parents, I hope that's true in your homes with your kids. I hope that's true in your relationship with your friends, uh, people that, that don't know Christ. I had a professor in seminary who once said to us, a friend is someone you can be a heretic with. Now, not forever, but sometimes. Man, I'm really struggling with doubt. I'm really frustrated with God right now. 
You see, the problem at the end of the day isn't doubts. The, the problem is unresolved doubts that sucked and settle and then turn our souls, our hearts and minds against God. So Asaph's problem, according to verse 2, is, is doubt. But there are lots of things that cause doubts, that create doubts. And I see three things that are behind Asaph's doubts that I want to highlight as we understand the problem. And the first is found in the next verse. According to verse 3, Asaph sees the prosperity of the wicked, the injustice of it all. And this becomes an intellectual problem for him, an intellectual conundrum. Doubt is getting stuck on the backside of a question mark. It's a horrible place to live. And the question for Asaph was, if God is good, how is it that evil people prosper? How can that be, God? And then he unpacks this as he continues a a lament of sorts, beginning in verse 4 all the way through verse 12. And he says, uh, how can it be, God, that people that completely reject you, people that are arrogant, they're abusive, they're they're cruel, they're, they're ruthless, live such carefree, comfortable lives? Now, the reality is ruthless people can always make a whole lot of money. They always have, they always will. But the problem is, how is it that a good God allows that? Now, this is an honest intellectual question. But there's more, because we also see in verse 3 that Asaph tells us with refreshing honesty. I mean, talk about honesty and transparency. He admits it wasn't just merely an intellectual problem. It was also an an emotional one because he wanted their life. So the second aspect, the second thing behind his doubt is he envied their wealth, their success, their power, their carefree existence. He desired it so much he toyed with walking away from God. So he saw something and he envied something. Now others correctly point out in places like this that our doubts, now hear me in this, our doubts are rarely merely intellectual. And the problem is they they masquerade, they always masquerade as merely intellectual. Now, let me illustrate this. Steve, for example, doesn't go off to college and read a book in a secular philosophy class and say, okay, I'm done with Jesus. No, Steve goes off to college and he he reads the book, but he also has professors, friends, uh, fellow students that he wants to impress, that he wants to please, and they represent a way of life, a a new way of thinking that he begins to desire, he begins to envy. Man, that's cool. And all those experiences, all those influences, uh, all those relationships into this, in addition to the book he's reading in this philosophy class, cause Steve to walk away from God. Now, Steve would say, well, it's just an intellectual thing. But it's always more complicated than that. 
And that's exactly what's going on with Asaph. Asaph just happens to be honest enough to admit it. You will always be attracted to the beliefs of people that you want to like you. And and apparently Asaph wanted some of these people, maybe there were power brokers, movers and shakers in Israel and Jerusalem. We don't know. Uh, But apparently Asaph wanted these people to like him. And so he was cozying up. You see, we are social creatures, not just, as another has said, brains in a vat. (laughs) It's not ever merely intellectual. We don't believe in a vacuum and we don't doubt in a vacuum. Our our beliefs and our doubts uh, come from a constellation of uh, intellect and emotion and, 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 and experiences. And parents, again, by the way, this is why how you live before your kids is just as critical as what you believe. And for the rest of us, how we live as, as we interact with people in all different uh, corridors of our lives, is uh, how we relate to them and how we live before them is just as important as what we believe. Because sometimes we want people to come to Christ and we're absolutely convinced of Christ, yet we're willing to sleep around. We're willing to swear. We're willing to drink like crazy and to lie. And what we end up doing is creating doubt in the lives of the very people we care about that we want to win to Christ. Doubt is a constellation. A lot of variables in that equation. And let me go to the third. Let me show you one more. Jump down to verse 14. In our discussion of Psalm 73, too often I think we tend to overlook, we tend to downplay this verse. I want you to see that Asaph now, according to this verse, doesn't just have an intellectual problem, he doesn't just have an emotional problem, he has a major experiential problem, a major experience problem. His life was going backwards. Now, we don't know what it was, but he uses really strong language. He says, I was plagued. I was being punished every morning. It was bad. Maybe it was a financial thing. Maybe it was a health thing. Maybe it was a relational thing. Maybe his life had got flipped upside down, inside out. We don't know, but he was hurting. He was bleeding, totally confused. And he was godly. And it was that personal experience of suffering, loss, setback that proved overwhelming. So yes, the injustice of the prosperity of the wicked was a real issue for Asaph. But I want to tell you, I do not, I do not think if he was in personal, if he wasn't in personal pain, he would have crashed and burned, almost crashed and burned like he did. Hands down, now... Let me be transparent for a moment. Hands down, the most difficult question I've ever been asked in all my years of pastoral ministry came from my son, who happens to be 20 today when he was 12. And he said to me, Dad, how is it that none of my friends' moms have died, but God took my mom? Now think about that. Because if you're going to problem-solve You have to understand the problem. That's not just an intellectual question. 
an intellectual problem. It's also an emotional one, an emotional problem, but ultimately, uh, more significantly, it's an experience problem. And we had to spend a long time processing that, uh, uh, unpacking that. I say that because that's exactly what's going on here in the first half of this psalm. It's verses 13 and 14. Now, yes, there can be intellectual uh, confusion, questions behind our doubts, but the deepest doubts, uh, the deepest angst, the, the deepest anger is born in such painful experiences that for a while we're convinced that God doesn't exist, God doesn't care, and God has moved on to other people that are more interesting. Uh, but faith in Jesus Christ, is not holding on in spite of the evidences. It's holding on in spite of the appearances. In spite of your experiences, there's lots of evidences. And this brings us to the result, uh, the result of this problem and these issues behind the problem. Look at verse 21. Asaph is mad at God. This is a guy that's ticked off. He uses the term embittered. Again, good people, godly people, spiritual leaders get angry at God. Now that anger, I I need to quickly point out, is never legitimate. There is never a legitimate reason to be angry at God. God is perfect. But it's real. And if Asaph can get angry at God... I think it follows that so might the rest of us. So that's the first part. That's this conflict. That's the problem going on with Asaph. What is the problem? The problem is doubt. What's behind it? Well, there's an intellectual, emotional, and an experiential uh, factor. And what's the result? Well, you've got a guy who is mad at God. A key player in the spiritual life of the nation. Now let's go to the second half of the psalm. And let's look at this guy's transformation. Let's look at the resolution or or the solution. And it all starts in verse 17. And I want to highlight, there's more, but I want to highlight four factors that I I want you to see, that I want you to think about. And the first is found in verse 17, and it's Asaph worships. We don't see this coming. We don't expect this. We're told in verse 17, he enters the sanctuary, either the tabernacle or Solomon's temple. Even though he's in a bad place spiritually, even though he's full of doubt, even though he's riddled with anger, even though he's ticked off at God, Asaph still goes to church. And while he's at church, something happens. John Calvin said it was studying God's word that turned him around. Others say, no, he saw an animal being sacrificed. And and, in thinking and reflecting on that animal being sacrificed, he understood his sinful responses, and he understood the forgiveness that God offers through the sacrifice, and, and he repented. And maybe it was music that he heard 
being sung or music that he was leading. He was a musician. Uh, We don't know. But what I want you to understand is that Asaph didn't just go to a place. He had a worship experience. A sensory experience that I talked about last week in Psalm 63. And it was life-changing for the man. This happens all the time. This is one of the main ways God works by his uh, uh, grace and according to his spirit to restore us. And don't miss this. You see, one of the main ways out of doubt, one of the main ways out of being in a dark place is to go to places where you worship. Go to places where you encounter God. Go to places where you see God. Go to places where you can step beyond yourself. You see, it's often experiences that lead us into doubt, and it's often our experiences that lead us out. Our our worship. Going to church. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people come up to me and say, oh man, oh man, did I need to hear that today? That's a right, man, this is going to change my life. That's verse 17. Second, also in this verse, Asaph sees the future. He sees the big picture. So in the last line of verse 17, he says, I understood their final destiny. I, I understood it. I, I, I got it. And then he elaborates on it, on it on the next, in the next three verses, 18, 19, and 20. In other words, by God's grace, Asaph undergoes a, a paradigm shift. And he moves from the present, the immediate, focusing on the present, the immediate, and the earthly, to the future, the eternal, and the heavenly. And instantaneously, he realizes that all the prosperity, all the success, all the carefree living of uh, of the wicked people around him who do not believe in God and reject God and are cruel and abusive to others, all of that is fickle and fragile and vulnerable and temporary, and it will fail, all their success will fade away. And apart from faith in God, they will be lost. Look at verse 18. Uh, Interesting language over and over in the psalm. The repetition here. Asaph sees them on a slippery slope. Now, if you go back to verse 2, he was the one that was slipping. Here, he sees the wicked on a slippery slope. People put their feet on what they trust. We put our feet down on what we trust. And Asaph suddenly understands that as slippery as he was, as, as many problems as he has, the fate of the ungodly is on ground that is infinitely worse than his because it will not sustain him. The money, the pomp, the power, it's all going to fade. It's all going to go away. And as we know in light of the New Testament, after death, comes judgment. So yes, uh, suffering, setback, uh, uh, injustice, uh, seeing the prosperity of of people around you that denied Christ while you're going in in reverse. Man, those are hard pills to swallow. Hard for us who believe in God. Uh, But what Asaph is revealing, it's a much bigger problem 
for people that don't believe in God. Now, they don't realize it, but they have uh, no basis for, or, for saying anything at all is unjust or, or, or evil because they don't believe in God and there's no ultimate justice. There's no ultimate right and wrong. But they're putting their, their feet on something they're choosing to believe in. So the choice here is not between belief and unbelief. The choice here is what are you going to put your feet on? Even atheism requires faith. What, what are you going to trust to hold you up? Asaph says, I am now going forward going to trust in God and only in God because the wicked will perish. I've seen their final destiny. I've seen the future. So Asaph, if God is so good, how do you respond to why the um, wicked prosper? And his answer is ultimately they don't. Now, believing in God God may be hard for you. It may be really hard for you. But not believing is far worse. When you doubt, when when you get angry at God, you're not seeing the big picture. You're too close to the situation. And you need to step back. And think about the big picture. Think about the future because you're overwhelmed with the present. Third, Asaph admits his error. I love this, verse 22. He refers to himself. Look at this language here. as a senseless, ignorant, brute beast. Who talks like that? Now, about themselves. Proud people don't talk like that. But there are always traces of self-centeredness and arrogance in our doubts, in our anger with God, in our frustration. God, I don't deserve this. Really? God, I don't see how anything good can come out of this. Really? Romans 8 tells us God works all things together for good. There's always traces of self-centeredness and arrogance in our anger and, and, and our doubt. But when you humble yourself, as Asaph here is humbling himself, and see that before the living God, because of the road you've started to head down, you're a brute beast, senseless and ignorant, you will start to heal. It's a humility thing. As somebody else said, you know, it's, it's one thing to be confused about what God is doing in your life or not doing, but it's another thing to be confused about being confused. We live in a sinful, fallen world. We are sinful, fallen people. Uh, We are going to be confused at lots of different points in our lives, but we should never be confused about being confused. It comes with the territory. That's why we trust God. Now, that doesn't make necessarily the journey any easier, but it keeps us from being surprised. Fourth and finally, Asaph recenters on God. Man, he refocuses on the supremacy, the majesty of God. He rehearses the blessings of God. We see this beginning in verse 23 all the way to the end of the chapter. Now, really, I think there are two answers in Psalm 73 to this age-old question of if God is good, why do the wicked prosper. And the first we've already talked about is ultimately they don't. But the second and more important answer is found here in this final section. And the answer is this. Ultimate goodness is not a material thing. Ultimately, the good life is not a material thing. It's a spiritual thing. 
It's not a horizontal thing. It's a, it's a vertical thing. It's not what you possess. It's living life in the presence of the living God. Resolution to doubt and to anger isn't getting all your questions answered. There will always be questions we can't answer. But it's a willingness to rest in the character of God and the person of God to submit to him. So here in this final section, Asaph flips this whole question of the prosperity of the wicked on its head and says, we're wrong about prosperity. Prosperity isn't the accumulation of stuff, assets, living a life of ease. Prosperity is knowing God. And specifically now, let's drill down. According to verse 23, it's being convinced of the presence of God, uh, the protection of God, the grace, the love, and the mercy of God. You start to slip, but who's holding your right hand? The living God, just as a parent holds a toddler's right hand. It's a picture of love and grace. And then according to verse 24, it's resting in the wisdom of God. The ongoing guidance of God. God is going to guide me. God is going to get me to the other side. And then at the end of the verse, the, the security of knowing your future, your eternity is set in the presence of God. Now, look at the verbs here. Uh, rehearse them. God holds you. God guides you. And God takes you into his glory. Holds, guides, takes you into his glory. And as a result, you know nothing is better in all of life than God. That's verse 25. And you know it's God, not your stuff, that is your portion. That's verse 26. And it's God, not your assets, not your savings, your bank account. That's your refuge. That's verse 28. It's grace that melts our doubts. It's grace. It's the table. And and for us, this side of the cross, and Asaph didn't have this privilege, it's knowing that Jesus died in our place for our sins. And, And it's that confidence that enables us to come into the presence of God, knowing that God will take us back after the way we've acted. After our anger, after our doubts, after our moving away. So God hid his face. God let the hand of his son go that he might grab you by your right hand and hold on forever, forever. And you will never, ever let go of your anger. You will never, ever let go of your doubt until you understand that God let go of his son to rescue you from yourself. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you. We worship you. We praise you. Bless us, God. Give us the grace to work through uh, the challenges we face. Give us the grace to trust you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen.